Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, Patreon-exclusive Doctor Who Christmas special. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. We're going to be talking about Twice Upon a Time. If there are any of you out there who are brand new to Doctor Who and just came on to watch this Christmas special, this is a British sci-fi series that depicts the adventures of a time lord called The Doctor, an extraterrestrial being from the planet Gallifrey who explores the universe in his time-traveling ship, the TARDIS, to help civilizations and people in need. If you are a Whovian and you are familiar with this, this is our 13th Christmas special that marks the final hour for Stephen Moffat and Peter Capaldi. The 12th Doctor, still refusing to change, goes on a last adventure with the first Doctor, a continuation of events after last season's cliffhanger and during the final moments of the first Doctor. So we're going to go over both here. We'll talk about the general plot line if you're not super familiar with the background, but we will also give you some of those fun facts, Easter eggs, if you've been watching that you might have discovered for yourself. Doctor Who is always so difficult for me because every episode has so many callbacks or you'll understand this more if you knew this doctor. Mm. So what we're going to try to prevent ourselves from doing is going too down the rabbit hole. We're going to stick with this episode and refer back to some of the main Easter eggs that Moffat gave to us and not try to over-explain different things, especially since we know some of the Clatchers haven't even been keeping up with Doctor Who, so there's some gaps in their knowledge, so it might not mean as much to them. Even for myself, I'm a little spread out. I think I explained last time I came in on this 12th Doctor, Peter Capaldi, and then we went back to Christopher Eccleston, the 9th Doctor and started watching our way through, but I'm only up to Matt Smith now. I haven't gone through the entire timeline back up to Peter Capaldi. It took me a while to get Christina on board, but once she saw me watching the 12th Doctor, she got intrigued. And we had the whole Doctor Who series on Netflix, and I was like, hell yeah, let's watch it again. It was my third time around. A couple of things, I realized every episode that we'd watch, I go, oh no, this one's my favorite. (laughs) Oh no, 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 this one is my favorite. (laughs) which is a good sign. But then what happened and the reason why we're not caught up is many reasons. One, we had to watch our shows for the podcast. We had our movies. And two, Netflix no longer had Doctor Who. So I had to find it on the internet, which was a lot more difficult and a lot more... Sporadic as far as the coverage. Well, and if you've been with this, you know as important as the Doctor, which changes every time he regenerates, like we said, we're on the 12th now, currently being portrayed by Peter Capaldi, and this is his final episode. You also have the creator, Stephen Moffat, who is very intricately involved in everything, and this is going to be his last as well. For this episode, the director was Rachel Talalay, and she's done a few Doctor Who episodes in the past. And produced by Peter Bennett. This is the final hour for a lot of essential cogs to the Doctor Who that we've known and grown to love. It was sad in many ways, but also brilliant in many ways because it's a perfect way to go out. And we'll go deeper into the reasons why. We have said in the past that we felt like Stephen Moffat was starting to lose the edge. Some of the Doctor Who episodes just kind of felt milky. He didn't have the tinge that he used to have. And we know that Stephen Moffat, as a child, wanted to grow up to write and direct in Doctor Who. This was a dream of his. This was the big thing, if he could make it there. And they originally asked him to come on to write two episodes, and he thought, my dream has come true. And he wound up staying. But I think they do have their runs, much the way the doctors do. And you get to a point where it feels like a natural progression, a natural stopping point. And I think for Capaldi, this is perfect. He has just 
nailed what the 12th Doctor's about, and he's going out on a high. And so is Stephen Moffat. I have nothing but respect for Moffat, and of course, his main man, Gaddis, who also helped write a lot of episodes for Doctor Who, and we know is co-creator and co-writer for Sherlock. I'm looking forward to see what new projects Moffat has. I know as an artist, there's certain times where a project or something you are really into, you just start to lose your motivation for it, especially with something as difficult as that. And I think this sparked it up again, you know, go out with a bang, and he pulled it off perfectly. Well, he said it was really difficult to write this. By his own admission, he quotes it somewhere between a coda and a drum roll. First of all, you have the departure of one doctor and the arrival of another, which means that the episode is usually strongest at its climax, which is at the very end. And you also have the fact that it's a Christmas special. So there's certain elements of it. I think they feel the need to tone down or keep a little bit lighter. And it's very hard to balance all of those things. One of the articles said that that led to feeling like everything preceding the regeneration was a little insubstantial which I don't totally agree with. I totally don't they, agree with um, it at all. They also said that they felt David Bradley was a little underused. They enjoyed the two doctors bantering and bickering about everything from the sonic screwdriver to the sunglasses, but they were disappointed that they didn't dig a little bit deeper and go into some of those more important questions about what it means to be the doctor and why he fled in the first place. Which I could see David Bradley is perfectly suited to playing a slightly more introspective, deep kind of character. But I really enjoyed some of that light banter they had going on. I thought it was perfect. You really don't want to steal the show and the spotlight from Peter Capaldi. So I think he was there a little bit in a supporting way. Absolutely. Whoever you read this from is an idiot because... (laughs) This wasn't a typical episode. It's not about the adventure, per se, that he has to go on to save the world. Actually, he realizes later on that it's not a dangerous thing that he was fighting against. It's rather more about all four of our major characters in this episode are either dead or dying, and each of them, in their own way, are coming to terms with their own mortality and accepting it. I think that's very deep, and that's a perfect prologue to the regeneration. I think you said it right there, though. They're all sort of doing it a little bit internally. So there was a few brief lines of dialogue between the first Doctor and the 12th Doctor regarding the fact that the story here really was they were both fighting the regeneration. They didn't want it to happen. So I think some viewers were looking for a little more of that, the conversation about why didn't each one want... This is the two instances in the whole timeline of Doctor Who, that the doctors were pushing back against that. And I think they wanted to see the two of them discuss it a bit more. But they agree that once the adventure part, so to speak, is over, this is where they really start tugging on the heartstrings and the episode starts to come into its own in an emotional way. Capaldi explains it right before his regeneration, metaphorically, with the battlegrounds. Essentially, his whole life is a battleground filled with characters, and in the end, it always ends up empty with him alone. And we see this struggle at the end of every Doctor's journey. They're almost depressed. A lot of times, they're reluctant to get a new companion. We've seen that a few times. And it looks like Capaldi was summing it up with, I'm going to do this alone for a while. So I think right there, Capaldi was done. Well, doctor, the Doctor was done, the 12th Doctor, and he didn't want to do this again. Yeah, but that's not until very late in the episode that we get that. And I think that's what they're saying, that the very last part of this is the best where it comes around to 
wrap up in a perfect summation of Moffat's era. They say there's time paradoxes, plenty of gags, and most importantly, a whole lot of heart. So how did everyone else feel about this? IMDb gave it an 8.7. Rotten Tomatoes was at an 80% with the audience score at a 76%. Not that much lower, but I think it's the first time I've seen the audience go lower than the critics, especially on a show like this. I think that's one of the grades that will continue to go up as we look at it weekly. I think that it'll balance out. Not everyone got to see it on Christmas. Well, yeah, it has already. It started out at a 68%, the audience score. And we did read that it was watched by 5.7 million viewers overnight in the UK, making it the second lowest overnight viewership for a Doctor Who Christmas special. But it was the fifth most watched program of the day across all channels. So as you say, just a lot of people not watching TV that day. But there was a lot of really fun things to talk about. So let's jump into that and go over our fun facts first. Starting with the director, Rachel Talalay, who stated she had no idea who the next Doctor was going to be even after completing filming on this episode. It was several days later that Jodie Whittaker was announced as the 13th Doctor, after which Talalay was recalled to complete the filming of the regeneration scene. And of course, as has been done in the past, when Russell T. Davies handed off the series to Stephen Moffat, the incoming showrunner will write the new dialogue for the next up Doctor, So Chris Chibnall wrote the dialogue for Jodie Whittaker here. And I think that's smart because it sort of transitions you into the next person that's taking the baton to write it in their own way. I don't recall her saying much. There was only a little bit. I think she was excited when Hmm. she looked and saw the reflection was female. There was also a cute line at one point where Bradley says he expected his future self to be younger when he's looking at Capaldi and realizing that this is him way down the line. And while it's true that Capaldi is younger than Bradley in real life, he's actually only one year older than William Hartnell was when he played the first Doctor in the original series episode. And that's why Capaldi said, I thought so too. (laughs) Because the original first Doctor died or was regenerating at a younger age than the actor who's playing the first Doctor now. Exactly. Another fun fact is that the before-mentioned Chris Chibnall, who again is taking over the throne from Moffat, has written for Jodie Whittaker in Broadchurch. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. So Chibnall has worked with the future doctor, and he's worked with a past doctor, David Tennant. So I wonder if he called David up and was like, hey, man, so guess what? I'm going to be taking over for Moffat's job. Well, and Whittaker's, of course, worked with him as well on Broadchurch. Yeah, so she probably called him too. Ooh. Does this mean we can hope for some David Tennant comebacks? I don't know, but there's always a lot of crossover. Speaking of that, let me jump right into my trivia questions for you, Jason, because I have a few about crossover. I'm sure Whovians will know that David Bradley has been on this show before. So, Jason, how many times has he appeared in Doctor Who, and do you know any of the episodes? I gotta be honest with you, I don't remember. Well, this is his third time. He played Solomon in the episode Dinosaurs on a Spaceship and William Hartnell, so he's portrayed him before, in An Adventure in Space and Time. Ah, okay. Another crossover, your next question. This also marks the third time an actor from the Harry Potter series went on to play a doctor. Do you know who the others were? Other than David Bradley? David Tennant. Correct. And who was he in Harry Potter? Barty Crouch Jr. 
That's correct, in the Goblet of Fire. And the other? The other one's a little bit more obscure. We talk about Harry Potter a lot. Our last movie review, <laughs> There's we had so much actors crossover. from Harry Potter. Yeah. And you always love to bring up David Bradley. The children are out of bed. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, I'll give you a hint. The other actor was John Hurt. Oh, that's right. The Doctor of War? Yes, but who did he play in Harry Potter? Uh, it's the, the, the wand guy. Yes. I'm forgetting his name, though. Yes, Ollivander. Ollivander, he yes. Sells the wands. He's That's great right. That. Okay, and your final question is true or false? The Christmas truce that they talk about in this episode was a real historical event or not? Yes, it was. Yes. That's 1914. Great. It's a truce which saw many British German and French troops stopped fighting long enough to celebrate the holiday together. That'd be kind of weird. Like, okay, guys, we're going to start fighting again. But what's not true is it, it's not technically the only time this happened. There's two other times that it happened, but it wasn't as big. And it was really the soldiers not taking the commands of their generals and fighting. Yeah, this was an all-out stop for the day. They did actually begin by singing Christmas carols across the lines to each other. Some started standing up out of the trenches, and at first they were nervous until they saw they didn't have any guns. They approached each other. They met right there in no man's land, that area where we see Mark Gaddis and the other man sitting, and they wound up exchanging gifts and playing football together. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. And I love the fact that Gaddis put that into the storyline. Yeah, it's beautiful. me too. And I know it's been used a few times in movies and shows, but not lately enough where people of our generation would say, oh, this has been used. Uh, to me, it was very unique, especially to the Doctor Who universe. I thought Gaddis's whole portrayal of the captain here was very understated in a beautiful way. It made you feel for him. He really wasn't this primary character the way sometimes they are when the Doctor goes on his adventures. He was sort of in the background, and yet you grew to have empathy for him. By the end, you felt bad that they had to return him there. He was the only character that grounded us in the humanity because no one else is human there. Yeah. Even Bill. And I love his humor that everyone else sort of has an idea about this world, the TARDIS. Even the first Doctor, if he doesn't quite understand all the newfangled things that are going on with the 12th Doctor, he still knows what it means to yeah. time travel, to be a time lord. And here is the captain just sort of going along for the ride, going, I don't know what any of these <laughs> things are, but it's fantastic. Look what these police boxes can do nowadays. It's brilliant because Mark Gaddis had a tough role being the guy that's the one to ask questions. Like oftentimes it's easy to become kind of a one-dimensional character when you're the question asker, you know? Mm, I won't mention any names, but some of the companion's boyfriends... I, you always hated In them. I love past. them. <laughs> I have such respect for Gaddis. The more and more I see him on TV and see his writings, of course, we love him in Sherlock. But if you guys haven't seen Taboo, it's not really an amazing show. It's very weird. But Mark Gaddis plays Prince Regent. He's this fat, disgusting man mm -hmm. and an asshole. Doesn't even he really plays him look so like him. Well. No, all you can tell is from his eyes. Mm -hmm. He plays him so well. And... I love him as Tycho Nestorius. In Game of Thrones? Yeah. I love David Bradley as Walder Frey. Mm-hmm. Two, I think, of my favorite roles 
for those actors. Yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. I'm excited to talk about it. Let's get into our plot, which opens up with this brilliant previously on and a timestamp of 709 episodes ago, where we see the first doctor saying this isn't all over, it's far from being over. There's actual footage from William Hartnell's final serial, The Tenth Planet, from 1966, playing in the background. And that episode, if you're not familiar, was notable for the introduction of the Cybermen. That's right. They looked, looked so cheesy back kind then. Kind of funny. <laughs> um, it was a four-part adventure that contained episodes 131 to 134. Twice Upon a Time, the episode we're talking about now, is episode number 840. So the 709 refers to the first part of the serial adventures. That was four parts, yeah. And the recap contains nothing of part four, as it is one of the 97 episodes that's still missing from the BBC's archives. That's crazy that it's missing. Except for the actual death, which is only a clip that was recorded for a special when it was used in a 1973 edition of children's magazine program, Blue Peter. Yeah, so all they had was the regeneration sequence left from the original footage. And that's pretty amazing, though, if you have to preserve any part of that to have the regeneration sequence. I know sometimes I'm very easy to make happy, but I guess that's what makes a, a TV lover, right? But I love the fact that it opened with the normal old school square television feel, black and white. As they bring in David Bradley, it gets widescreen and color. Who bears a resemblance to William Hartnell. I mean, it really works the way that they did it. And, you know, they talk a lot about how early on they avoided this area because there's gaps, because we don't really know a lot about what happened with that regeneration. But... I think it was bold of Moffat to approach it, and I think he tied it in very nicely with this doctor also fighting his own regeneration. It just worked. So our first scene moves to the present. It says, A long time ago at the South Pole, the doctor refused to regenerate twice. What do you know of regeneration? Are you a time lord? You know who I am. You must. (laughs) Have you come to take the ship back? A ship. You still call it a ship. Oh, dear. What have you done to it? Nothing. The windows. I don't remember this. I don't remember trying not to change. Not back then. Look at it. It seems to have expanded. Well, so those years are bigger on the inside. You try sucking your tummy in that long. Why are you trying not to regenerate? I have the courage and the right to live and die as myself. And what's also interesting about that for David Bradley, it was after his encounter with the Cybermen. And we know Peter Capaldi has just gone through something similar. Capaldi realizes this is where it happened for the first time, the very first regeneration. But he doesn't remember fighting it or why he did it back then. So that is a little weird at times in Doctor Who, the memories he's able to retain and the ones that he's not. Later, they do the same thing with explaining why he doesn't remember Clara. Yes, And then all of a sudden the memories kind of magically come back to him and it feels a little bit forced into the episode. But here I was so wrapped up in their interaction, the two of these actors on screen, that I didn't really care. Well, it's so cool, the current doctor meeting the OG doctor. But also, I don't think, and I could be wrong in this, I don't think it did happen the first time. That's why he didn't remember it. It was a break in time. And that's why all these events occurred. Nobody was fighting it. 
for real the first time around. Yeah, but even they didn't before meet. the break. They no, 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 there. no, they didn't meet. But he can't even remember fighting the regeneration. Why did he do that the first time? And realizing that that's what he's trying to do, he also says if he dies here, if he effectively does fight it this time and never does all the things he's supposed to do, the consequences would be enormous for time, for the universe, for everything. And right at that very moment, everything stops. He says something has gone very wrong with time. And that's when our World War I captain shows up in his military uniform looking for a doctor. Yeah. It's important to note that Capaldi is further along in fighting this regeneration. And you could almost forget it, but he was fighting dying for a couple of episodes. Yes. Towards the end of last season. the end of last season. Yeah. And that's why we see him struggling a little more. I really enjoyed the way they did the frozen snow. Could see the crystals as it zoomed in and got sharp and then blurred away when he clicked it. Mm -hmm. The sky actually kind of ripples before everything stops too, as though you can just see it stuttering to a halt. And then they go back for a minute. To 1914, so we can see how this began with the captain sitting in the trenches, engaged in the standoff with the German soldier, neither one of them understanding each other. And we got to see Mark Gaddis do his good acting here, because a lot of the background when he's with the doctor, he doesn't have too much dialogue. And we can see that he's struggling with, do I pull the trigger? If I pull it, you will pull it. But what if you pull, you know, that was really well done. And then we see everything freeze. We see the bird is frozen. The fire's frozen, the people, so cool. And that's when we realize we have a timeline error. Yeah, this creature made of glass appears out of nowhere, and the captain is able to see these visions before suddenly being transported to the South Pole. Curious, why the South Pole, not the North Pole for the Christmas special? I don't know, maybe just to be different? (laughs) I love, though, the way this starts the interactions between the three of them right off the bat. (laughs) Bradley tells the captain to get in the ship for his own safety and opens the door to realize it's bigger on the inside. We have to have that line, right? But it's funny that this time it's the doctor himself saying it, a former version of the doctor. Well, he was saying it's bigger on the outside. And he was like, why is it so bloated? Yeah, but also on the inside when he stepped in, of course, then he's very quickly diverted by the fact that He hates the way it now looks on the inside. Everything is so different. And we start the banter, the clever banter that the two doctors utilize throughout the storyline that I know everyone loved. And we get our first call back there because the captain starts asking some questions and you can see the doctor's already thinking of other things and he's like, Spoilers! And that's a call back to River Song. Yeah, well, he actually tells him, you're a captain from World War I. And the captain says, what do you mean one? Is there going to be another one? (laughs) Yeah, can you imagine? It's also this point where Bradley realizes that Capaldi is him in the future and that the two of them are very different. So Bradley keeps coming out with these sexist, chauvinist comments and that created some controversy Mm -hmm. because it's true that the first doctor exhibited some chauvinist values in the 1960s. And it would often be the case that the doctor had the lion's share of the action. The first doctor was a lot more protective of his female companions than his male ones. But a lot of people that wrote articles about this said they couldn't find any specific examples of sexism, at least not nearly as egregious as the ones we see in this episode. So if you want to read more about that, you can check out the article by Den of Geek. 
But I don't think that's a big deal. I, I found it kind of funny. They were just showing yeah. they're living in two different times and Capaldi has come a long way. He's like, you can't, you can't, can't say, say things that. like that. <laughs> also, I think it's kind of fitting because we're about to have a female doctor. Of course. So it's kind of a wink, wink. They're laying the groundwork. And, you know, he keeps saying, what's wrong with the ship? It looks like a French restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's even a comment at one point about the size of the windows, which is something oh, that's, that's right. been debated. The interior of the TARDIS doesn't always make logical, practical sense. But, you know, it doesn't have to. It's Mm-mm. the TARDIS. Nothing about it really makes sense. Yeah, I guess it was a big deal that the windows on the exterior of the TARDIS is much bigger. But the whole thing is bigger. So that's why the windows are bigger. Right. Exactly. Purists. (laughs) So our next big action comes when this large spaceship appears above them and abducts the TARDIS, ordering them to come up. The voice says, the chamber of the dead awaits you. When they go up, the aliens offer an exchange. If they give up the soldier so that he can be returned to the moment of his death in 1914, the doctor may speak with her again. And we find out shortly that her is Bill Potts. She enters the room, but the doctor doesn't believe it's her, as Bill was turned into a Cyberman. When he scans her with the sonic screwdriver, he finds out she is indeed a duplicate. And the alien destiny explains that as every soul dies, they appear at the exact point of death to take them here and harvest something. We don't really know at this point what they're taking from them, but after they do so, they have to return them right back to that moment before they die. Yeah, so at this point, you know, It's a pretty scary place. It's called the Chamber of the Dead. They look like villains. I mean, even the character itself is very alien-like. We don't know it's glass. We don't know the details at this point. And when they say they take what they need... Harvest. harvest, It's such a scary word, right? And then bring them back. We're like, oh man, what are they taking? Souls? So they never get to see the afterlife, you know? I have to tell you, though, from... The time we first see her image on the screen, and to me it looked like some kind of liquid metal. I didn't know it was glass at that point. Very serene and quiet the way she showed up there. She's also taking him away from a moment that we know is sure to end in his death. I wasn't intimidated by her. I was intrigued. Her name is Destiny. There's all these Mm -hmm. hints that maybe it's not something frightening. And I think the biggest one comes when Capaldi starts trying to scan her with his glasses and he can't really figure it out. I love this moment. Bradley kind of scolds him to stop with his toys and just look (laughs) at her, use his common sense. And he does, in fact, make this deduction that Capaldi misses, the fact that her face is asymmetrical, so she can't be computer-generated. And it's just sort of telling him, you know, listen, kid, I was the doctor way before we had any of this stuff. And I figured out how to do this based on my own logic and deductions. We can do this together. Yeah, it's in these moments where the original doctor feels wiser. Mm. But that changes, that shifts as the episode goes along. Yeah, and we know that's probably isolated to certain things. You know, we see later there's knowledge, there's wisdom, obviously. This doctor is not even about protecting people yet he's purely running from what we still don't know like the entire story but he's getting away from Gallifrey he doesn't want to encounter any more time lords that's why initially he's suspicious of Capaldi but that's really the big thing that he's come to over time with the doctor and we'll see that in that very touching scene at the end he helps people that's his job now but you were saying at one point (laughs) It is odd. The 12th Doctor 
who's come later and should know more, sometimes seems more impulsive, more childish, even in certain ways, like when they're leaving the ship and he starts telling them off, I'm going to find you, find out who you are and what you're doing. (laughs) And Bradley says, why are you advertising your intentions? (laughs) So funny. I love that part. Can't you stop boasting for a moment? (laughs) Who the hell do you think you are? And it is funny because the doctor has gotten a little more grandiose as time has gone by, but that's the point, I think. A little arrogant that he's always going to be able to get the job done. And Matt Smith, I mean, remember when he declares war Mm -hmm. and he says, this is my earth, I'm the protector. If you want the earth, you need to battle me first. Yeah. Remember that on the roof? Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't know what they're about here, if they were trying to intimidate Bradley or break them apart, but they show him who he's going to become. There's snippets of all of his time flying before them. They tell him the doctor has walked in blood through time and space, gone by many names. And one of them is the doctor of war. Yeah, and all those names we have heard before. They include the shadow of the veil yard from the trial of a time lord which was said to be an avatar of the Doctor's darker side, the oncoming storm, the imp of the Pandorica, the beast of Trenzalore, the butcher of Skull Moon, and the Doctor of War from Hellbent. They also say the last tree of Garsonon, which appears to be a new one. We don't really know what that's from. So yeah, in that light, when you sum it up that way, he does look like exactly what the first Doctor is trying to prevent, Mm -hmm. that he becomes the person he does not want to be. And Capaldi, in a joking way, says, but they forgot all the jokes in between. But are they trying to split them here, the two doctors? Are they they trying to make Bradley kind of go against him? I wonder, or at least second guess him. Yeah, I think the big thing is they don't want them to escape, which is exactly what happens. They jump onto the chains that are lowering the TARDIS, but the aliens stop the descent just before it can hit bottom. The group jumps to the ground and lets them retract the TARDIS back into the ship, realizing they will need to use the old TARDIS. We saw that coming, but it was great. I'm so happy that they did. Yeah. And of course, it's all white inside, very clean, smaller. Much smaller. I like the clean white look. It kind of looked like if Apple made the TARDIS, right? (laughs) Yes. And this white look was established in 1963, and it lasted with minor updates and variations for much of the show's original 26-year run, the only exception being a brief period from 1976 to 1977 when the wood-paneled secondary console room was utilized. Yeah, and that was like another separate room anyhow. I think some people didn't like the newer versions of the TARDIS that came afterwards. A lot of people don't like change. That's just <laughs> yeah, it. I guess that's it. I, I'm excited to see the new variations. I wonder what this new one is uh, Yeah, be like. to me, that's an exciting part. I can see where there are so many things, and you and I have talked about this amongst ourselves, that change over time with this show. From your primary character, the doctor, and I know the essence of him is the same, but everything from the actor portraying him, the age, the gender, as mm-hmm. we're seeing now, to personality types. I mean, each doctor is slightly different in personality. If you look at Capaldi alone, within his own incarnation, he was the tetchy time lord, then the aging alien hipster, Mm -hmm. and winds up now kind of ending off the quintessential doctor. Your companions change. Your universes change. Sometimes we're in the past. Sometimes we're in the future, different places. There's not a lot 
we can hold on to. And I didn't understand this early on because there are certain people I'm not as in love with. I know River Song is one of I your love her. favorite characters, but I think I'm starting to pinpoint she is one of very few examples of a constant in this show that sort of gradually weaves its way in and out, comes in with very similar lines, a very similar relationship to the doctor, no matter what else changes. She is there and she's consistent. Also, to be fair, you haven't seen her whole storyline. You're in the middle of her storyline, so you haven't seen the arch yet. No, that's true. But I do find now some comfort in the stability when she's on screen. The same way I'm starting to say with somebody like Nardole, who I really didn't like in the beginning, but he's becoming familiar. Yeah, and now he's gone. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Back to this scene, this is also the moment where Bill realizes that Bradley is the doctor's former self. By the way, I'm calling them Bradley and Capaldi because it's weird to call them like one in 12. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so um, she comes to that realization. We see the captain not understanding at all what's going on in the background. And the doctor trying to figure out who the aliens are, but the old TARDIS database is so small, it's not going to work. They need to find another. Yeah, it's not actually about small. It's that the database doesn't have the information yet. He hasn't it's from put the it past. in. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> this is when the doctor was going to tell Bill to clean Capaldi's TARDIS. Remember? And that's when the doctor interrupted him. But I love the way Bill is reacting throughout the, all this. She gets excited. You know, oh, you're... The doctor as well. Well, I think she's playing it very well because there are certain things that are very Bill-like, but the entire time I was getting a feeling something is just a centimeter off, a fraction. It's not quite her. And I think that's got to be probably very challenging to portray. This takes us to our next action scene where we arrive at the center of the universe. The weapon forges a villain guard which they tell us was once the nightmare of the seven galaxies and is now home to the dispossessed. The reason they're there, they do have a complex database, but they also want to kill the doctor. It took me a minute to realize where he was. I was so confused for a bit. I knew it looked familiar, but it's dark now. It's run down. I just kept saying those buildings in the background seem familiar. There's these creatures scuttling everywhere that you knew a lot sooner than I did what they were. Yeah, but that took a while too until I saw the Dalek. Yeah, well, first one attacks the captain. So they take him back to wait in the TARDIS. And there he admits to Bill he was ready to die until the thought of being rescued gave him hope. This was kind of his standalone scene. He has a bit of a monologue of his background, despite the fact that he has a family. He understood his cause and his mission. He was okay with it if that was his moment to die. But by them bringing him out of it for so long, it's given him time to kind of rethink. Yeah. And now he's, he's lost it. And so he's having the struggle of what we all have, which is mortality. Yeah. And having to sit around and think about it for <laughs> at least a day, anybody's going to have that fear now. Well, of course, I don't want to die. Yeah, well, the, now the he's seeing things gone. that are amazing <laughs> too. Yeah. Even the doctor, even though he doesn't die, die, every time he regenerates, it's pretty much a new person. I know. I didn't like that in the behind the scenes where they were saying the temptation is to write his final scenes as though it were a death. And Moffat thinks that's wrong because he's not dying. He's changing. But as I said, um, if the actor is changing, his personality is changing, he doesn't retain all of his own memories. It is sort of a mini death for him. He's not really coming back the same. 
Well, he doesn't retain it at first, but they do come back. Some of them, but we well, see that's flawed too. Well, Clara, he took away on purpose. Right, but we see here he doesn't remember fighting the regeneration the first time around. There have also been a couple of other instances where we've had issues with memory too. And I think, you know, some of that might not entirely have to do with the regeneration. We hear him say later he's lived so long and he's been through so many things that those amount of memories couldn't be contained anywhere. And that could be a factor, but it also seems to be over time, his regenerations are becoming more violent. And we're going to discuss that later on in the episode, but I wonder if that has an effect on him. So let's switch over to him. Because outside, Capaldi explains to Bradley that the creatures they see running around are old friends who have mutated, as you said. So at this point, we don't know exactly what he means by that. And this is one of the ingredients that Doctor Who utilizes often. And I love that. The beginnings of episodes, the Doctor knows more than what we do, but he doesn't know it all, just like us. Then we start to learn what the Doctor knew as he learns more about what's going on. So we're always a little behind him until the end. Yeah, and he does know what's up in that tower. He keeps telling Bradley, it, it wants to kill me. Well, and, yeah, he knows you know, I'm... Per- Bradley's kind of like, what, what is it? I yeah. don't understand. But he doesn't know that this wasn't an actual villain that he was fighting. As he's learning that storyline, we're learning what he meant when he said they oh, mutated. Sure. Things like that We're always a little behind, which is kind of fun. For sure. So let's talk about this. If you aren't as familiar, these are basically Daleks out of their shells. They're called Khaled mutants. They were the mutated descendants of the humanoid Khalids on the planet Skaro. Sorry if I'm pronouncing any of that wrong. Uh, But enclosed in protective armor and weaponry, they have become the organic parts of the current Daleks, mounted in the upper parts of their travel machines. And this kind of reminds me of Men in Black, you know, the little little creature inside of the bigger control station when they open him up. Oh, yeah, that. And also the way it attacked his face, that's just like alien. The face huggers. Yeah. This is also the moment where you see Capaldi is weak due to his death, his refusing to regenerate. It's really starting to have effects on him. You get the idea that we don't have long for him to decide one way or the other. Is he going to keep trying to fight it or surrender to it? So he's wondering why Bradley is doing it. You know, he knows why he's doing it. Bradley finally admits he's doing it out of fear. Capaldi's about to perhaps share his own reasonings, but then something starts shooting laser blasts at them. He challenges it to scan him and confirm that he's dying anyway. And he scales the tower to face it, saying people don't believe there can be such a thing as a good Dalek. Before Peter Capaldi goes up, we have that great scene with Bill and Capaldi. At first, Bill is remiss to go inside of the TARDIS with the captain. And we see that Capaldi doesn't trust Bill. You know, he he feels like this is a fake. It's going to probably be there to trick him. She gives that speech. He's looking right at her, but can't see her. And she gives that great speech, you know, this is me. I am Bill. And the doctor, you know, of course, says, well, if that is true, that's all the more reason I I lost you and I don't want to lose you again. But (laughs) in the midst of that, Capaldi's kind of being rude to her, or sharp, at least, with her. And she reacts, calling him an arse. And respect me. You're an arse. Do you know that? You, 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 you're a stupid, bloody arse. As I've always respected you. And that part marks the seventh use of the word arse in Doctor Who. 
It was first used by Clara in Heaven Sent and was peppered literally throughout the most recent series, featuring in five of the 12 episodes, four times from Bill and once from Nordol. And that's when we get the old doctor coming out saying, If I hear any more language like that from you, young lady, you're in for a jolly good smack bottom. So this scene marked a few things. It let us realize why the doctor is letting Bill come along for this adventure, even though he doubts her, because he has that seed of hope that it still actually is her. And they have that great story. She kind of wins him over with that after. And also it acts as a nice callback for us. Bill saying that he's looking right at her but can't see her is almost word for word a callback to Peter Capaldi's first episode, Deep Breath. In that story, the newly regenerated 12th Doctor says this to Clara. Do you remember that? No, I don't. She can't grasp the fact he's still the same person inside. Remember yeah, the, the I, I vaguely, but you're, you're talking about like this was the first Doctor Who I ever watched because we did this Doctor and then went back. So it's been a real long time and a lot of episodes in between. Okay. So that's a scene that I think was very important but it was hard to realize how important that was with everything going on. Well, it's, that's what I mean. It's difficult. I, I, I can see as a director the temptation, especially in your last Doctor Who ever, to just start flying out callbacks. But if we started listing every single one, it, at points it almost feels like it's more for him even than it is for the audience. I mean, even if you've been a Whovian, like I, I've seen a lot of episodes now. I'm sure there's people that are much more engrossed in this than me, but that's a lot of years and a lot of quotes and a lot of things. You know, it's, it's hard to kind of piece it all together. I see what you're saying, but Doctor Who is always about callbacks. That's like part of the fun. Oh, for sure. But did you see the list for this one in particular? Well, this is his swan song. That's what I mean. Yeah. I think there was a temptation for him almost in a way for himself, even you know, as much for the audience to kind of link it back to everything. A celebration of his years there. Well, in addition to Bill talking to Capaldi, you also get the scene of Bill talking to Bradley alone, and she asks why he stole the TARDIS and ran in the first place. What was he running to? But I thought this was really poignant, perhaps one of the most important parts of the episode, because Bradley explains in a logical sense, good should always lose with all the things it's up against. So why does it prevail? There is good and there is evil. I left Gallifrey to answer a question of my own. By any analysis, evil should always win. Good is not a practical survival strategy. It requires loyalty, self-sacrifice, and uh, love. Uh, so why does good prevail? What keeps the balance between good and evil in this appalling universe? And you can really see at this point in his journey, it's a critical juncture. If this adventure hadn't gone well or he hadn't seen the purpose in fighting, maybe he would be running from for a very long time instead of running to, which is what Bill is almost instilling in him. And she tells him maybe good is just this one man going around trying to help people and make a difference. And it's important for him to know how amazing he is. And that part felt very Bill, but of course, then she wraps her arms around him and we see in the background, their arms made of glass. Yeah. She says she's Bill Potts, but she's also part of testimony now. 
These scenes, which were broken up with scenes of Capaldi up at the tower, really messed with my head because when the doctor's leaning over and looking at the Dalek parts, we see the glass figure in the background. We don't see Bill. Then we go back to Peter. Then we go back to him, and he's talking to Bill. And I was like, oh, shit. So that means Bill is the glass figure. Mm -hmm. But then when Bill is talking to him, I'm like, man, she's talking like a good character. Is she being nefarious with this? I was really trying to grasp what kind of creature this was, pretending to be Bill. And then with the hug, I was like, oh, no, is she about to kill him or something? Mm -hmm. Like I was so thrown off there. Yeah, you don't really know until this culminating part now where the doctor is inside the tower, finally talking to the Dalek. First, we figured out that it's Rusty. For a brief moment, I thought it was Clara. Oh, yeah, I did too, for sure. And if you don't remember, Clara was a Dalek. The first time we ever saw her, she was inside the Dalek. Or she was the Dalek, but her mind had her inside of it, trapped. And she had no idea. And we come to learn from her companionship that she had many lives all broken up and they were all different characters of Clara. But no, you're right, it's Rusty. Yes, and his only previous appearance was in the 2014 episode Into the Dalek, where he was introduced as a soldier who had sustained severe damage and seemingly developed morals. So the Doctor and Clara were miniaturized and sent inside of Rusty to try to fix the damage. But in doing so, they actually restored his original program. They linked in telepathically to him in the hopes of showing him the beauty of the universe. The doctor, though, instead managed to instill in him his hatred of the Daleks, causing Rusty to turn on his own species and declare that the doctor himself would make a good Dalek. Yes. Do you remember that episode? That was a fun one. Yeah. Very adventurous. I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Makes me miss him even more. <laughs> you know, just being very nostalgic about this doctor. Well, and the whole point of this is for him to be able to link into the Dalek hive mind, the biggest database that he knows of. And that's a new introduction. In fact, there was a Doctor Who episode a long time ago that specifically said this species did not have a hive mind. Right. So he's sort of changing it a little bit here to fit. Did you enjoy the fact that it was rusty? Was that okay to you? Or did it feel like Rusty was a character that was kind of put in there to take the story from Act 1 and 2 to Act 3 and 4? I, I didn't mind it. It was a letdown because I thought it was Clara. And I thought, what a brilliant way to bring her into this last episode. Then they say it's Rusty, and I'm like, oh, well, that's not as good as, as Clara. But, you know, that's kind of fun because all of these things that he's had an influence on over the years come back eventually. And this time, things are coming back to help. It's not a bad thing. Then we get to the scene later with Clara, which felt so weird and shoved in there like completely transparent that Moffat just had to get her in there somewhere and had no idea how. So you have her and Nardole and it's like, boom, boom, boom. Nothing really is working in very organically. And I thought to myself, well, why couldn't you have had this be Clara here then? You know, like maybe that would have flowed a little better. Yeah. And I wanted to say the same thing, but to be honest with you, and I haven't had time to look back into it, I forget how that episode ended with Clara as a Dalek. So that's why I was remiss to fight it I, as I th- opposed to being rusty. I thought that it just ended with him having to leave her there. Yeah, you're right. But was the ship, I forget, was the ship like crashing or something? Uh, 
No, leave her where she was at. He wasn't on his ship when he left her. She was still in that same building, wherever she was at, roaming around by herself. Um, So, you know, I don't know. Maybe there is more continuation to that that I haven't seen in episodes in between. But No, that's the last you see of her as a Dalek. Okay, so then, I mean... It could have been. Maybe you're right. It could have been. You could. That would have been classy. It, it that would have been dope. I feel like it would have been a better way to bring her in than just to say she's another one of these glass avatars that we're bringing in a whole bunch of them at the end. And uh, this is like a late in the game introduction to these people, the testimony and these sort of companions that he's had in the past just as a way we can get them all on screen together. Yeah, I think it was... Moffat towards the end and we're jumping, but to try to sum up all their storylines because mm-hmm. we didn't see what, ever, what ends up happening to Bill. We didn't get to see what ends up happening with Clara. And it still didn't tell us what happened with Clara. There, I don't mind. I actually love the fact that she was there, but I don't like the way they just had her there for half a second. And it's always like a little bit, he has to make it a little confusing and magical to work. So with Bill, she was a Cyberman. They sort of showed you this girl in the puddle come and somehow save her. Mm-hmm. But we don't exactly know how that happens. And even Bill says in this episode, well, that chick Heather saved me, but I don't really remember how it happened or yeah. how I got here. I'm just kind of here now. <laughs> and, you know, I get that in a show like this, maybe you have to fudge to make certain things fit in. But um, the, the Clara area in particular was one that just wasn't working too well for me. What was more important for Moffat at that point was to regain the doctor's memory of Clara as opposed to summing up Clara's character. But I think, and I might be wrong in this, but I think that was just a clip of Clara that they've had already of her. And that's why they could only make it that short snippet of her as opposed to her being able to talk with him alongside the other two characters. So you don't think she was a full glass avatar there? I think she was supposed to be, but I don't think they got her to act. Oh, like they got the show. Her, the actress actually there. Right. It was uh, a clip of an old one. I read that there was a lot of timing schedule conflicts, and they had to film this, I believe, last, other than the Jodie Whittaker scene. They had difficulty with time? Yeah. <laughs> they have no TARDIS. But we have definitely gone off the rails here. Sorry about that. That's my fault. Well, that's okay. I left off telling you about testimony. So let's come back and explain that a little bit better because it is a new introduction. We see that when Capaldi plugs into the system, he gets the identity of that alien, the original glass avatar that showed up in 1914. And it's Professor Helen Clay from the University of New Earth, year 5 billion and 12. Now, if you recall, New Earth is a concept we know about. It was a planet first visited by the 10th Doctor in the 2006 episode, and again in 2007's Gridlock. I don't care about any of that. I want to know what the iPhone looks like there. No, I do (laughs) care about it because Gridlock was actually my favorite Ah. Doctor Who episode so far. And it was New Earth way in the future where people had pretty much had to go underground And they're in these hovering cars on an endless highway. Yeah, that was cool. Do you remember that? There's some kind of monster underneath. Something about that, I don't know what it was. I was riveted the entire time. (laughs) That's when I was really sold on Doctor Who. So this is supposed to be 11 years before New Earth, the episode, and 41 years before Gridlock. But there is a New Earth 
and people there, and apparently this group called Testimony. Now, the latter story, Gridlock, revealed that a deadly virus wiped out almost the entire population of the planet, and only those within that underground transport system were saved. But here, they tell us the Testimony Foundation combines resources of time travel with memory extraction techniques, so the near-dead can be lifted from time streams, their memories duplicated, and then their physical selves return to the moment of dissolution. Thus, these memories can be placed inside of glass avatars and kind of live on. It's an ongoing question throughout the episode, is this really that person? Because the doctor continually challenges it. It's just one section of your memories. This is not you. And Bill keeps saying, well, that's all we are, is our memories. And our memories and our experiences. Mm-hmm. This is so crazy. I really love this storyline because it's something we talk about now. We discuss it often in life because we're always thinking about the fact that we're going to have computers that have the ability to upload our brains. And then we'll even have machines that can look like us. And with Black Mirror, we see that often. By the way, Black Mirror comes back, I think, tomorrow. Is mm-hmm. that what I said? Yeah. On Netflix, a new season. Sunday. I wish we had time to podcast about that. Oh, but basically, we talk about it. Someday, we will be able to download our memories and live, quote unquote, forever. That's what we've been discussing, everyone in the world. Is that really you, if it's just your memories, if it's your thoughts and things you've gone through? Well, it seems devoid of genuine emotion and natural reaction to an experience. It also does not seem capable of growth, of establishing anything new from this point forward. So you were you from that moment in time. Was the you of five years ago the only full you you can ever be for the rest of time? You know, it's kind of a weird question. Yeah. Well, I wonder with AI, if they would take it a step further in the future and have it where the new you, now going off of experiences that it's having as an AI... Could continue grow. to assimilate. Yeah. yeah. But then after a certain amount of years, it won't even be you anymore, will it? Because now all the experiences are completely different. Well, isn't that you in regular life, though? True. See, it's just a rabbit hole. <laughs> well, despite all of those questions, the doctor realizes either way, this is not an evil plan. This is not something he needs to stop, a foe he needs to fight. Oh, it's not an evil plan. I don't really know what to do when it isn't an evil plan. And in fact, they made a mistake. By interfering with this timeline, they have to return the captain to that point. That's what testimony intended to do, was to get him back there, and they've stopped that from happening. And this was another key moment for Capaldi. He's really gotten down the humor that he wanted his doctor to have. It was perfect. It was right on point with what we know and love about Capaldi. And so they take the captain, they return him to his moment in the trenches, telling him he won't keep any of these memories. And he only requests that they check in on his family. This is where we find out his name, Captain Archibald Hamish Lethbridge-Stewart. And that's supposed to be an ancestor of Brigadier Alistair Lethbridge-Stewart. Remember the character who was reoccurring, played by Nicholas Courtney between 1968 and 2008? I don't, because I didn't watch the black and white ones. Oh, yeah, but we've heard about him. Yes, of course. So this is a relative of his, and, you know, kind of good that we didn't know that until the end. Um, But it doesn't happen that way. When time resumes, this is where we get our Christmas armistice. 
The doctor explains he adjusted the time frame by a few hours to get them to that spot, Christmas 1914, when both sides lay down their weapons. See, this is something that our 12th doctor thought of. The OG doctor didn't even, you know, he didn't even think anything except for let's put him back where he was. Yeah, it's a way that they don't interfere with anything, but they change it enough so they can save his life. Bradley says, so this is what it means to be a doctor of war. He finally gets it. Which is and awesome. Capaldi says, you are right. The universe is rarely a fairy tale, but that's where we come in. So they shake hands, and Bradley says he's ready now to go. He returns to his TARDIS and regenerates. So this is where the sadness that we always get during the regeneration. I was like, oh, now it starts. They start saying goodbye. We start getting... And I always get choked up at that point. And I always end up hating the new doctor because I'm upset that the <laughs> this original... or That our current doctor is dying. But it was it was good with the first doctor because we we were constantly throughout the episode having that sense of he's supposed to be doing this. He's messing things up by not regenerating. So at that moment, it was great. But we knew it was a sign of what's to come. Yeah. And that scene, though, was kind of lacking. And that's nothing they could do about it. His regeneration, we didn't really see him regenerate. Well, were, we saw him just laying there. They were using some of that original footage. So there was only so much, that they could I do. guess, if they wanted to keep true. And then we won't belabor this. This next scene we've kind of been talking about where Bill says she's going to prove to the doctor her memories are what's important. He sees Clara. Nardole appears. The essence is the doctor trying to die so he can have peace, debating if he actually should regenerate. Yeah, this is where we learn what he's fighting. And I, again, we already did say this, but the fact that he always ends up alone. He's always lonely with many deaths, many people he's loved past. A life this long is an empty battlefield and everyone else has fallen, he yeah. says, just like this. But they tell him they couldn't imagine what the world would be like without the doctor. Got a suggestion for you, then. Oh, there's a novelty. Don't die. Because if you do, I think everybody in the universe might just go cold. Can't I ever have peace? Can't I rest? Of course you can. It's your choice. Only yours. We understand. No. No, you don't. So he thanks them for what they've both done for him. They have a little group hug here, thanks to Nordol. And Nordol says cuddle, which is a callback to the group hug at the end of Oxygen. And then he returns on his own to his TARDIS. Silly old universe. The more I save it, the more it needs saving. Which we always say, but that's part of the fun for us, right? But it is sad to think if you're the doctor, the more you do the more you have to do. It never fixes anything, no. really. But, you know, he has this sort of classic line next where he says, but they'll get it all wrong without me, so what can I do? You know, it's worse if I don't step in. And he finally comes to terms with it. He decides he's going to surrender to it and leaves these final words of advice to his next form. Never be cruel, never be cowardly. Remember, hate is always foolish and love is always wise. Always try to be nice and never fail to be kind. You mustn't tell anyone your name. No one would understand it anyway except children. Children can hear it sometimes if their hearts are in the right place and the stars are too. But nobody else ever. Laugh hard, run fast, be kind. Doctor, I let you go. What a great bow out it was capaldi it was perfect wonderful phrasing and i'm they finally went back there's been this 
underlying current, this insinuation this whole time about what in the hell is up with the doctor's name. I mean, obviously the show is Doctor Who, but in Matt Smith's final year, it was revealed that saying his name on Trenzalore would have reignited the time war. There's something powerful behind his name. And this is a brand new piece of information after all of these years that Moffat decides to give us. But children can. Sometimes they can know. It's almost like children can see the magic of Christmas and communicate with angels. And what is it that's special <laughs> about kids that they know who the doctor is? You know, it's very intriguing. I like that a lot. It was very poetic as well. Just beautiful for Capaldi. And this ends with him regenerating into the new female form, the 13th Doctor, welcome Jodie Whittaker. Now, I didn't totally understand, I will admit until later, that it was the violent burst of energy from his regeneration that actually damaged the console room of the TARDIS. I didn't link those two. I thought it was malfunctioning while he was regenerating, which is kind of silly because it's the third time in a row that the TARDIS was in the process of crashing as a result of the doctor's regeneration. So people are saying, doesn't he know enough to just ground the TARDIS while he regenerates so that doesn't happen? The last shot we get is the doctor being thrown from the TARDIS where she sees it exploding in space before the ship dematerializes and she plummets towards the earth below. So there's a few reasons why his regenerations have been more violent as of late. And a lot of people say, and I agree with this, is that a Gallifreyan has 13 regenerations before they die completely. And this, even though he's the 12th doctor, he's already regenerated 13 times. And why? this is where it gets mixed up because we, even though these are the doctors that we've seen, there's been more doctors, the doctor of war which we've never seen, except for that one episode, right? That's a regeneration. I thought that was the first Doctor. No. That was a different Doctor. This is where it gets all convoluted, and I forget, I haven't read up on it in a couple of years. But basically... So this is his last time? No. Matt Smith, that was supposed to be his last life. And then if you remember, the Gallifreyans, who are in a different timeline time loop remember i think it was matt smith recreated time recreated the whole world or the whole universe again because of the fact that time was getting sucked up into that crack mm -hmm. everything was getting sucked up mm -hmm. he found a way to recreate everything and kind of started all over in doing that i'm forgetting the specifics he was able to crack the barrier between when the gallifreyans were still alive and him now mm -hmm. and they granted him another 13 lives that's right at the end before Matt Smith completely dies. Okay. He thought he was dying forever. That was it. And then you saw them. They gave him another 13 or I think 12 or 13. So he's only and on. He, and Matt Smith goes, this one's going to be a big one because it's like. Brand new. So he's only on his second. Well, no, he's on his 14th. But From this new time frame where if they regranted him 13 more, what is he on now out of the. The new 13, two. Two now. Two. Yeah. But the reason why they're so much stronger now is because he's on 14th or 15th generation, regeneration. So they're that much more powerful. And that's why there's all these sparks now, and it's just so huge. Yeah, but I mean, hmm, his whole point is to try to keep these time streams stable and to save people and we've seen the repercussions of what happened last time when his 
when his regeneration damaged the TARDIS and how badly that messed everything up, wouldn't you think he'd be taking more precautions? I mean, this could effectively destroy the universe if he's not careful. Yeah, I don't know why he didn't, but <laughs> I just wanted to explain why they're so big now. Yeah, it, it makes sense. Um, it's something you'd, you'd think we'd get some allusions to. I mean, they did a beautiful job of actually making that regeneration scene look impactful. I'm wondering, is that ship going to completely explode too? Because we kind of see it starting to and on fire, but then it goes elsewhere. It dematerializes. We don't really know what happens to it. And how is this new doctor going to get out of this? Plummeting from the space down to Earth. Well, we shall find out soon. They're currently recording this next season coming up. Yes, this will be series 11, so they call it. The format will be slightly different, 10 episodes, as opposed to the regular 12 or 13, but they will all be one hour long. So we will actually get more screen time, although where have you heard that before, Jason? Uh, Many times. (laughs) In addition to that, you're also going to have a novelization of this story, Twice Upon a Time, written by Paul Cornell, that will be released in paperback and digital formats in April of this upcoming year. Oh, awesome. Well, as you said, we could go on forever with the Easter eggs and the tie-ins. There were definitely more things. There were some more even that we had, but those were the ones we found particularly interesting. We'll definitely be watching as it comes into Series 11. I'm excited to see what Jodie Whittaker does with this next incarnation of The Doctor. For this, the end of the Stephen Moffat and the Peter Capaldi. We had our final episode, So let's give our ratings on a scale of 1 to 10 doctors. What do you give twice upon a time? 9.5. It was as good as it gets. One of my favorites by far. There's only a handful that I can think of that I liked better. It destroys last season's Christmas special. That one was horrible. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) It left me feeling good and confident for the next seasons to come. I have to tell you, I was very remiss to like Peter Capaldi. Me too. It took me a while to warm up to him. I felt like he was cold, he was old, and he was crotchety. And I think I finally got to see, as of late, and especially this episode, what Peter Capaldi's frame of mind for this kind of doctor was. I think the only issue was that Stephen Moffat wasn't able to portray it as well as he could have. This doctor had a serious side to him, but a funny side as well. He had some goofy nature, not like goofy like Matt Smith, but kind of like the rock star. He had issues because of all the things he's gone through. And I, th- I just love looking back on it now, what Peter was able to do. He was tired. He was old. He was in some ways ready to be done with this helping the human race thing. He wasn't interested in being charming or funny or relating to his human companions. It took a while for him to open back up to the idea of letting people in and being a protector again, I think. And so I think you're seeing that transformation within the stages of Capaldi moving through the character. He is also self-confessed to taking a while to find his stride in how to portray the doctor. So there was a lot of different growing pains. And particularly for me, starting out with this doctor, it was really hard for me to kind of get into it. And towards the end of that, I saw one episode of the earlier where we were going to go back and start watching and there was Christopher Eccleston and I loved him and he's still my favorite doctor so (laughs) then when we switched back gears to Peter Capaldi I was like I can't do this I don't (laughs) like this doctor but I'm surprised that I really did like him in the end I thought it was great I give this episode a 9.6 doctor beautiful 
Further, it was a great swan song for Stephen Moffat. I believe the storyline was perfect. The whole, if it's not an evil plan, I don't know what to do. I, I thought that was great because this episode wasn't about something evil that he had to protect us from. It was about what we all go through in the thought of death and dying one day and how we struggle with that often. I'll tell you, as a companion, Bill wasn't one of my favorites. Actually, it's one of my least favorites. It was another reason I had difficulty. I didn't love Peter Capaldi. And then I really never grew that connected to Bill as a companion. So there were two pieces that were really hard for me to put together. And then going back and seeing the original Doctors and their companions, I was like, something's not working here. Um, By the end of the season and losing her in the way we did, I got a lot more emotionally tied to it. I guess I wasn't feeling the same connection between Bill and the Doctor, their Mm. own spark or whatever that is that keeps them together. I think they, they tried and they did an okay job with bringing that back here for the final scene. It was still a little touch and go for me. I'm very excited to see what that's going to mean for a companion with the 13th Doctor. Yeah. I felt that same issue with Capaldi, though not as badly, and Clara, because Matt Smith and Clara really melded very well. Mm-hmm. Clara is probably one of my favorites. I think it comes down to Amy Pond, Clara, and Rose Tyler. Yeah, she's my favorite. That first doctor and the first companion, <laughs> as far as this time around, you know. And if you call River Song a companion, which I wouldn't, she's up there as well. She's probably my favorite favorite. So there was goods and there was bads with this generation of doctor. But in the end, I'm left very happy with Peter Capaldi. And that's why, I'll move on to our next thing, my MVW, Most Valuable Who, is Capaldi which I pretty much made obvious, especially for this episode. He couldn't have gone out better. And you could see he poured his heart into this episode. And watching the show after the episode on TV, I forgot what it was called, but it was basically behind the scenes of them recording the final episode. The end of an era. The end of an era, perfectly named. You could tell he was so sad. And he was happy but sad to say goodbye. And he really loved being the doctor. It was so genuine. Mm Mm-hmm. I agree. He did a great job, but I gave my MBW to someone else, and that's the first doctor, David Bradley. I love this man. I love him as an actor. I love him as Walter Frey. I love him (laughs) in absolutely anything he's ever in. I thought this was also a very hard performance to give. Oh, yeah. As you don't want to upstage the 12th doctor, but you are the OG doctor. You have to make an impression when you come on scene. You're out of your element, but you still have to be the doctor and cool and have ways to solve the case, even though you don't have technology and be funny. And um, you are that person just in an earlier incarnation. So, I mean, could have gone horribly wrong, but I thought he just handled it perfectly. He was a little bristly, funny, real. I enjoyed his performance a lot. And some of our Patreon members gave us their thoughts on this episode, with Lewis saying, I dug this episode, but I like 10 and 11's regenerations better. Well, I mean, 10's regeneration. David Tennant, you could tell David didn't want to not be the doctor anymore. I actually think, and I might be wrong on this, that it was ad-libbed when he said, I don't want to go yet, or I don't want to leave yet. Yeah, that That felt so genuine. Anastasia wrote, I thought it was way better than most of the recent Christmas specials. I agree, except for the Christmas special with River Song. I really love that one. 
I agree with the regeneration not being quite as good as some of the others, but love that they use the original footage of William Hartnell regenerating into Patrick Trofton. Yeah, I thought that was great. I also agree because if you're going to have this spectacular regeneration for the 12th Doctor, it feels fitting to have an original sort of different kind of regeneration for the first. Mm. So I I thought that fit perfectly. She continued to say, I thought David Bradley absolutely nailed it as the first Doctor. Mm -hmm. Agree. I saw it at the cinema and there were a couple of making of programs on the episode. They even used some of the original props from the first 1962 TARDIS in this special. It was a fantastic high note for the Stephen Moffat and Peter Capaldi to leave on. Agreed. Speaking of cinemas, this one, Twice Upon a Time, was in the cinemas yesterday, December 27th. So it was in the cinemas for only one night. Kind of a weird night, a Wednesday night, to be in the cinemas, but very cool. Lewis wrote back saying, oh, the episode itself was awesome. He really did a great job on this first Doctor. And the way they used old footage was amazing. It looks like our Clatchers really enjoyed Doctor Who as well. And speaking of our Clatchers, it's the end of the year. Hopefully I'll have this out before the first, but if not, I'll have it out right after it. And next year we have some ideas that Christina and I have been throwing at each other. And we want to add a little bit to the Patreon memberships. And we will divulge that and everything in its entirety during our bonus episode next month. But also, before the bonus episode, keep looking back at your Patreon page because we will be providing you with a lot of polls. We want to know what your thoughts are on your favorite movies this year. We're going to kind of tie up the year with what we love, right? Movies and TV. So we're going to have the best comedy, the best horror, the best TV show. We'll break it down not too crazy, but we'll break it down in good parts. And we want to hear what you guys think about your favorite movies of the year. And we'll also have other year-end questions for you. So we hope that you participate and we look forward to listening to those answers. Thank you for going on an adventure with us, this time through time and space. Yeah, that Christmas special wraps up the 2017 year for the Coffee Clatch crew. I hope everyone's holiday was awesome. Until next year, this round's on me. This round is on me! You wait a moment, Doctor. Let's get it right. I've got a few things to say to you. Basic stuff first. Never be cruel, never be cowardly, and never ever eat pears. Remember, hate is always foolish, and love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. Oh, and you mustn't tell anyone your name. No one would understand it anyway. Except (laughs) 
sometimes. If their hearts are in the right place. And the stars are too. Children can hear your name. But nobody else. Nobody else. Run fast, be kind.